Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we watched the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery, which is set 10 years before the original series with Kirk and Spock. It's a new series starring Sonequa Martin-Green as Starfleet Commander Michael Barnum. Uh, She was raised in Vulcan and she now serves on a Starfleet ship captained by Philippa Georgiou, who's played by Michelle Yeoh, and the opening two-parter sees Burnham encounter a Klingon ship and witness the outbreak of war. I've been very excited about this show for well over a year, basically as soon as it was announced, instantaneously. This is the understatement of the year. Very excited, you say. (laughs) (laughs) Unbearable. The the really good thing is I live with a lot of Star Trek fans, so it's been like very much on equal footing here. But yeah, I kind of, I did like a prediction tweet just before we started recording where it was just like, I think Morgan's gonna think this film, this show is fine. And my reaction is that it has literally no flaws apart from Michael Burnham's pronunciation of the word censor, which I think should have been censor because that's the way that Spock pronounces it with his Vulcan accent and she has a Vulcan accent. my god. (laughs) I mean, that's not actually a sincere criticism. I have sincere criticisms. But this show, you know, I wouldn't say it awakened anything in me because those parts of me were already awake. Oh, oh my. Oh my word. Like, is there really, like, a normal number of times to slightly cry during a Star Trek episode? I don't- I think there's just, like, there's really an unlimited- (laughs) Oh, boy, oh boy, oh boy. There's- there's so much to unpack here. (laughs) So- so far to go, so deep to delve on the Star Trek well. Yeah. Why don't you outline your Star Trek history for okay. the viewers or the listenership, I should say, uh, for those who don't fully grasp how, <laughs> how far back this goes so that we can understand. Because I know, but they may not. Probably like zygote level, because my mom was very into Star Trek as, as a youth and was part of the kind of mail-in Star Trek fan club. Um, oh, that's beautiful. But I did not actually have a TV as a child, so I did not grow up watching it. I was just peripherally aware, and I watched some random episodes of the original series in Voyager when I was like a teenager with my friends. But despite not seeing, I would say, a good three quarters of Star Trek's canon, I fucking love it. I'm very into it. I've read a lot of tie-in novels. I've read a lot of fan fiction. I've been watching a lot over the past years as sort of like training regimen, you know? Um, (laughs) uh, I also have like a very helpful list of um, recommended Klingon episodes for people who just started watching Star Trek Discovery because Klingon world building is very important and they're really building on that one in this. So, uh, you know. (laughs) Um, But Morgan, what is your Star Trek background? Um, I saw the first... Uh, reboot film when it came out in was it 2009 I saw it with I believe my mother at the local cinema and didn't particularly care for it I thought it was fine that means you're a Trekkie at heart yes <laughs> <laughs> this summer we watched one episode of the original series we watched the trouble with Tribbles. <laughs> yes and uh, last night I watched a film that you told me to watch from 1991, Star Trek VI, I believe, The Undiscovered Country, and I have watched the first two episodes of this show. So that's different than what you just described. (laughs) Different background that I'm coming from. So we have two different perspectives here today on Star Trek. (laughs) 
I mean, I'm currently halfway through making my way through seven years worth of Deep Space Nine, and I'm enjoying every second, so. Oh my god, I would die. Deep Space Nine is <laughs> the good one. <laughs> yes, I even so. Um, why don't you just, just lay it all out. Just talk about your feelings about this television show. Oh my god, you've just opened Get up it. too much power for me here. <laughs> I know, but we freedom. may as well just do it. <laughs> Just dive right in. Just um, yeah, I'm, I'm Pagan Morgan by the error here. <laughs> um, okay, I feel like everyone listening to this should probably have watched it by now. We're definitely gonna spoil everything. Yeah, I think that's fine. It's also not really that. Spo- I mean, it is spoilable, but it's also not really that surprising what happens. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing, right? Because before watching the show. I was like 99% sure that Michelle Yeoh's character would die. Because she's billed as a special guest she's star. Best, she's built so... as a special guest star. <laughs> um, and also, she's really famous and expensive. And also, yeah. Jason Isaacs is credited as the main captain. So I was like, she's basically going to die, which she did. I thought it was a pretty effective death. She's like the mentor figure. So that's a classic kind of character to die. And they set up like a really good relationship between her and Michael Burnham over the first two episodes. Um, not a great look for CBS to spend several months promoting this show as really progressive and diverse and then killing off a woman of colour in episode two especially seeing as many of the other cast members after this will all be white men but um, that's television for you (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) unfortunately um, I'm sure a lot of people will have problems with that I'm just hoping they also made the same prediction that I did and were not completely shocked by what happened Um, I'm sure some people will be um so basically the lead up to this show it's been neurosis inducing for me not because of the show's fault because i need to chill out and a lot of other people (laughs) hate this show before it came out and i was just like i just don't understand right and it's kind of my first experience of being a stan and it's quite good that i did watch it and then like it because otherwise it would have been very embarrassing if i'd been standing for a show that i didn't watch and wasn't good um (laughs) So far, kind of like the negative, I've not read like a lot of reviews in depth, but obviously there's a lot of reviews that are basically just like, it's generic and boring and shit, and like the acting's bad and the writing's bad, none of which I agree with, and I don't really think is accurate, you know, it's a really good show. But also like there's a lot of kind of debate about what Star Trek's ethos is and whether this is following in like a respectful way. And one of the things that a lot of people were concerned about, especially from the trailers, is that it's really dark. It's quite violent. There is going to be like some cursing later on. Uh, so they're they're giving it like a PG-13 rating or something. It's like, wow, that's really meaningless. Um, it's not like there's people like fucking all over the place or anything. <laughs> I mean, the first episode of Star Trek Enterprise included a really long scene where people take a space shower and pour decontamination fluid over each other. And it's just terrible. It's grotesque. So like, I think they need to calm down about that. But having watched it, it is relatively dark, but it's not out with what we've already seen in Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Several seasons of Deep Space Nine are basically a long serialized war story. Star Trek's also known for being really silly and comedic, which this isn't. And I can kind of understand if you're someone who really likes the silly stuff, you might be uh, displeased. But you can basically just go back and watch the old ones. There's 8 million episodes. um, And it's quite (laughs) unlikely that modern television is going to release a slapstick comedy about someone, like, losing a space rabbit in a spaceship. Like, that's not... That's not something that happens. (laughs) 
I was I wouldn't say I was pleasantly surprised, but I I was kind of satisfied to see that it does have a sense of humor. It's not really joke heavy. I'm hoping there's going to be more humor in later episodes, but it's definitely not one of these things where everyone's really gloomy. The attitude's really optimistic, even though it is about the outbreak of war. And they do have this kind of rapport between the main characters, which is something that you need for all Star Trek shows. Like they have to seem like they actually work together and like each other. And the only characters that don't like each other are Michael Burnham and the kind of alien science officer Saru, played by Doug Jones. And that's really funny because they've just got one of those like intentional kind of bickering relationships. And I was just like, I love this. This is one of my favorite parts already, even though they've had like two scenes together. Um, Because Doug Jones is a really amazing physical performer. He's the guy who plays all the monsters in Del Toro movies and um, starring in everyone's favorite film of 2017, The Shape of Water, aka The Fish Fucking Movie, which I am looking forward to to just so much. Uh, (laughs) But um, yeah, I I feel like although I would prefer there to be more humor, it's very much within the kind of mood and tone that Star Trek should have. And they've been really thoughtful about maintaining the politics. They do explain stuff pretty clearly in the first two episodes, but not to a clunky degree. So like, if you're new to watching Star Trek, you can watch it and understand, I think, fairly clearly what Starfleet stands for and the fact that they're all kind of like striving to be diplomatic and what have you. And then the Klingons come in or like, we just love to murder. (laughs) I thought it was interesting. I thought it was an interesting choice. To have the first two episodes of your television show be a prequel for your television show. Yeah, that was uh, that was bold. <laughs> I am not sure that was a great decision. It, at minimum, I don't really understand why it couldn't have been one episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that could have been... It wasn't like watching it, it felt like it was ridiculously dragged out, but screenwriters have are clever people like i'm sure that that could have went one episode long and then of course if they'd done that then i'm sure people would then be talking about whether you would have needed to have it all at all and then you know conversations would arise but i felt watching it like the the presence i enjoyed the most by a million million miles was michelle yo who is dead now so I was like, well, <laughs> it's like, well, she's very charming. And then we're losing the core relationship that you've spent two episodes setting up. <laughs> exactly. And the only other character on the ship who gets really any personality is uh, Saru, who you were just talking about. And so he and Michael have have a sort of dynamic that gets established. And then she has this relationship that gets established quite clearly with Michelle Yeoh's character. Blippa, who then dies. And then the whole time I was thinking, like, everyone else on the ship has no personality. Like, they're not getting into them at all. And then I was like, oh, that's because we're never going to see them again. Like, they're gone. That's done. I'm really rooting for the Daft Punk robot to come back. Um, Not because (laughs) that person, I don't know if they, I mean, I'm sure they have a name so they can sell a figurine or whatever, but I don't think they had lines as such. But I really want the Daft Punk robot to be like a regular recurring background character. Because it was cool. (laughs) Um, But I felt like that uh, there was something about it that sort of kept me from getting fully engaged. I think partially this is also just like a taste thing. I like sci-fi, obviously. I tend to like sci-fi films more than sci-fi TV, I think. Like I loved Doctor Who back in the kind of earlier seasons of the reboot before it Stephen Moffat sort of took over and it got worse but that's the only television show I can think of of this general have you seen Battlestar Galactica no okay because I think you'd like that more 
yeah my dad was really really into sci-fi really (laughs) yeah (laughs) um it's not like i've ever avoided it yeah the stuff that's sort of you know been on that i've started watching um has tended to be more realistic stuff although i love the leftovers which is technically sci-fi weird weird as shit but uh anyway i think part of the reason why this didn't totally click for me is just that it's not the type of thing i would normally watch but i did think that the fact that it was so sort of prologue-y hampered it a little bit because even though i didn't know that it was a prologue there was something about the way that they were so entrenched in this one event almost as though it was a movie but obviously it's not and so then I kind of found myself thinking like wow they're really sticking with this one thing for a long time and then you're not getting to know these other characters but you don't know why that's the case um and I I just found the whole thing a bit odd and then at the end of the second episode you get to this sort of like commercial for the rest of the season and it you know this season on Star Trek Discovery right and they show all of these clips from what the rest of the season and it's completely different setting it's a different set of people it's all of this other stuff oh I haven't even seen the trailer (laughs) yeah and I was like oh that's interesting like that's really not what we saw at all um And it just felt like a little bit of a strange way to pitch a show, especially because the show is airing on CBS All Access, which is CBS's online streaming service. And they put one episode on CBS on television so that if you have cable, you could watch the one episode. And then if you like it, keep watching online. And so if you're pitching the show with like one pilot episode, right, it just seemed like a weird so way to do it to what me. Like, does make know. sense to me like i think it's garbage they put it on cbs at law access because star trek should be on tv but i do understand them breaking the pilot in half because then there's a cliffhanger and you're like basically trying to like scam people into paying for the all access service but now you've pointed that out about the fact that it's a prologue which like obviously i knew but i wasn't yeah. really considering it while i was writing the review and that makes me really curious about who they think they're aiming at right so they're aiming at both at star trek fans and very much at new people like i think it's really accessibly written like they're definitely not bogging themselves down in like lore but it's a really weird move to do this thing where you have these introductory characters that then basically get abandoned and then replaced by another crew if you're not also introducing the third episode like in a three episodes together which would make more sense if they did the first episode and then like two more on CBS All Access, right? So right. yeah, that's really curious to me. Um, I mean, as a Star Trek fan, I'm just like, I'm definitely going to watch it. And I obviously like really enjoyed it, but that is a kind of strange choice. Like in terms of the, the pitching thing, that's definitely not what happened. Cause like Brian Fuller was the original showrunner. What he initially pitched was an anthology series where he was going to do the first season was going to be Discovery. So it was going to be a original series prequel then he'd do another one like 50 years later. Then the next one would be set after the next generation. So it's like a really ambitious, cool idea, but it's much less saleable than an ongoing drama with the same characters, you know? So they went yeah. for this one. And also the fact that it's kind of a prequel makes it slightly constrained, which isn't something that I yeah. particularly feel strongly about, but I understand why other fans are annoyed because it's like, why not just set it after the more recent shows and then you can move forward into whatever and you can kind of develop stuff instead of having all this stuff where 
people are like, why do the Klingons look different? And why is the technology better than the original series? And it's like, well, obviously, because it's being made in 2017 with an $8 million budget. Like, you idiots. Uh, <laughs> but um, structurally, it's it's curious, to say the least. <laughs> and also, yeah, and the villain. They introduced this, like, quite interesting villain in the first episode. Like, they, they have um, Takuvna, who's the leader of this kind of Klingon cult, I guess. Like, the Klingon civilization is ruled by all these aristocratic houses. And I think it's, you know, strongly implied that he's from one of these houses, but he's basically a leader in terms of religious sensibilities. So he wants everyone to go back to really early traditions, and he's kind of the equivalent of a nationalist, purist kind of guy. And he's like, the way to unite all of our different feuding houses is to go and fight the Federation, which is a pretty basic premise, but like, they execute it quite well with all of the Klingon mythology stuff. And then he dies as a martyr in episode two, as a kind of mirror of what happens to Captain Georgiou. So we actually don't have a main villain now. And I don't know who the main villain's gonna be. Yeah. Because there's two or three Klingons that are credited in terms of the promotional materials for the show. But like, I mean... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I thought the only stuff I thought in this two episodes that I thought was like truly dire was the Klingon stuff. <laughs> like, I thought it was, so like it's, it's in Klingon, which I respect. I was like, I but, love that they've done it in fucking Klingon. <laughs> but I was so bored that I kept like looking down at my phone and then I'd miss stuff because it was in fucking Klingon. And I was looking at my phone because I was so bored and I didn't know what was going on. So it was like this vicious cycle of just like <laughs> becoming even more confused and more bored. And, uh, I just, I found that stuff really, really unengaging. And I mean, people have been talking about this, but the uh, character design for them is interesting. Um, I don't know why anyone made that choice. I, okay. Um, it's real bad. It's really bad. There's some issues. Um, Every era of Star Trek has revamped the Klingons in a new way that each one is differently racist. <laughs> so, yeah. Because the original ones are like kind of red scare Fu Manchu moustaches. And then yeah. the 90s ones, a lot of them are wearing blackface for reasoning that is never clarified. It's like yeah. the main Klingon was played by a black actor and it's like you do realise you can just have the white Klingons be white Klingons. Like just do that instead. And then for this one, they're like, we're going to revamp it. And I think all the production design and the costumes for them is fantastic. And I think it really, the production design has given them this sort of cathedral looking spaceship. And it really kind of makes you realize how obsessed with tradition and architecture and art the Klingons are, um, which is like an interesting counterpoint to them being these warlike assholes. But then the design they've chosen for their physical like facial features they're like we want them to look much more alien than they did before which is like fine you've got some cool like ridges in the back of the head and they're hairless and they're lizards now but like the kind of facial facial characteristics are like they've given them like really broad noses and like really large lips and it's like you can't it do could that (laughs) it could not be more racist if you tried it's astonishing like i just can't and there's a flashback at one point with um the guy who who dies yeah Takuma and it's just like a black teenager and they've got like some of the prosthetics on him but not as much like he looks more human yeah and it's just like a black kid and I was like this is so bad it's really <laughs> it's really because before watching the show I was actually a bit more ambivalent so I was like maybe it's gonna be different and I was also under the impression that the 
the casting of the Klingon actors was different. But so like basically Takuma's played by a black actor. And like, as far as I know, most of the other main Klingons are all played by white actors. Basically, it's kind of you just found like a different way to do blackface. And I don't understand why they didn't like run the designs past more people. Because that's like the key criticism that people have of the way that Klingons... Yeah. Yeah. So, um... It's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. And... And I I think that the in general those scenes were a problem. Like they speak in very beyond the fact that it's in Klingon. Like the the um, subtitles are very formal, and I love the whole shit. thing was a bit stilted. I think if, if people who like Star Trek would be like, "This is awesome," so I think that's exactly. fine. Exactly, not the target audience. <laughs> but that's that's that was the only stuff that where I felt that specifically if they're trying to reach. I mean, obviously they are trying to reach, but like for the non-trekky audience that, that that was the stuff that i was like this is not gonna but go when you think about how many people well. watch fucking game of thrones right yeah but it wasn't i think because they're those prosthetics are so intense and because they're speaking in a different language that is not a real language mm-hmm. and doesn't sound like a real language no. and like that's fine but it's it do, it doesn't sound like it's just very dot 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 when they talk right and and that it's this sort of stilted stuff. Like, there are definitely nerdy people who will be super <laughs> into it, as we have seen across the decades. But I feel like for a sort of more broad audience, which, again, they're obviously trying to reach, that that would be the kind of stuff that even if it doesn't like turn them off the whole show, because there were other good things about it, that that would be the kind of thing that, again, you'll be looking at your phone at that point and then be like, I have no idea what just happened in that scene because I couldn't hear what they I were mean, saying. I hope they have more personal scenes with the Klingons. I mean, I'm assuming they will because they, they're clearly trying to like position more of a Klingon point of view, which they don't really have in other Star Treks as much. But... Yeah, I mean, I can see how people would find that off-putting, even though I will fucking eat up all of this Byzantine <laughs> garbage with, like, the 24 funic houses. Give it to me. This is my Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no. yeah, it's, um... Otherwise, flawless. <laughs> However, <laughs> I just really loved the, the introductory scene with the two Starfleet officers. It was just, like, such a perfect intro. Like, I was talking about it with my housemates because we all got up at 8am to watch it like freaks. Um, and we were just like, it's just like the first episode of Doctor Who, where the introductory scene for Rose and the Doctor, they were just so kind of well articulated in terms of what the ethos of the show was. And with Discovery, um, even if you don't really have much familiarity with Starfleet, I think it execute, um, I think it kind of illustrates quite well, like what they're trying to do, because you just have these two officers, they have a really good relationship, it's kind of warm, but really professional, and their job is to go on an alien, onto an alien planet with all these aliens that have a ridiculous name. They're called, like, the Crepusculoids or something. And they have to go and, like, save their well as a humanitarian mission, except it's not humanitarian because they're not humans. And the way they save it is by doing, like, a magical calculation with a bunch of numbers that they reel off in a really smart-sounding way, and then they just blast it with a laser gun. And it's just like, this is perfect. This is exactly what we need. And then they have a meaningful conversation about their careers, which is very important because Starfleet is basically Master and Commander. And then they have like a really sentimental moment where a spaceship bursts through the golden clouds because they've drawn a great big Starfleet logo while walking around in a big circle. And I wish they hadn't <laughs> included that in the trailers because I knew what was going to happen because I'd seen a trailer with it in and it was like, I would definitely have cried at this moment if you hadn't spoiled me for the meaningless <laughs> moment of them walking in the shape of a Starfleet symbol. Very emotional. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Well, that is uh, connects to one of the other sort of wild things about this show, which is all the fucking CGI in it. Oh my god, they spent it looks so like much a blockbuster money. film. I can't. I mean, I was I was definitely like, this is real space. It's space. They're in space. Well, and it was fascinating to watch too because I found the pilot actually quite poorly directed. There's so much lens flare. So, but though this was one of the things that came up before they basically fired Brian Fuller as showrunner because he wanted like a really he wanted like a good director. One of the directors he wanted to do for the episode, first episode was Edgar Wright, and then CBS was like, "No, we're going to hire David Semmel, who's this like very trustworthy workman like kind of CBS type director." Who just does yeah. a bunch of TV work, and it's like you know you could have had you know Edgar Wright, <laughs> but that would have just been another uh, probably somewhere in between those two would have been ideal. Yeah, yeah. I imagine Edgar Wright would have been uh, a hefty chunk of change. I'm... Did you see who the cinematographer is? It's all shot by Guillermo Navarro, who has an Oscar. That's he's, interesting. He's Del Toro's cinematographer because the lighting was not great. It was like so much. They're all in a laser but the thing spaceship. that I kept noticing yes thank you for informing me at that point <laughs> the thing that was making me insane was that like everything was shot in a dutch angle as though we didn't remember that they were in space and so like we're gonna put it in a dutch angle to remind you that like it's not straight because they're in space and i was like yeah i fucking know like please <laughs> calm the fuck down it wasn't as bad in the second episode but it was still going on well, a little bit by that but point that you pilot, know you're in like, space <laughs> Obviously, that is not something that is going to stop people from watching the show. But I still think it's like important. Like things should be made well. But then you combine that with this unbelievable CGI, and so it was this very strange mix of movie level production values, and then kind of hackish TV directing that was very weird to watch. Like, I've never seen anything like that before. It was Why kind of they surreal. Maybe shouldn't have hired. David Samuel to direct the, the pilot, maybe. Possibly. <laughs> Since they spent a hundred bajillion dollars on making literally a real spaceship. Because <laughs> as this show was progressing and more people were saying negative stuff about it and I was getting more obsessed with the behind the scenes details, like clearly they spent like so much fucking cash on this. But like one of the things they did is the Shenzhou's bridge, Georgiou's ship, it's on the exterior of the ship, it's on the underside rather than the overside. So they built it hanging off the ceiling of the soundstage. I'm assuming they must have some flashbacks because otherwise they literally built this incredibly ornate bridge set hanging off the ceiling of a soundstage for like two fucking episodes. <laughs> I mean, the rest of the stuff, they're just swapping over the sets with different lighting to like make it look like two different spaceships, which is fine. Yeah. But like, wow, it's elaborate. And like the Klingon ship, I would say I'm pretty sure a lot of people are comparing it to like Gaudi's cathedrals and I think that's fair. They must have hired Gaudi to like fucking spackle gold onto like a real, I don't even know. It was amazing. <laughs> I cannot, I just, I would love to see the books on that thing. I mean, allegedly it's $8 million dollars per episode, but that is the per episode budget. When you make a show, the sets at the yeah. beginning are, I don't even know. I mean. Mind boggling. But they well, licensed it to also... 188 countries through Netflix, so that's a lot of that's a lot of cash. Well, but also when you license things to Netflix, then well, I don't know how it works. Basically, the way TV budgets work, I don't know all the nitty gritty details of this, but a lot of your budget gets offset when you make a deal to license episodes out to um, 
like cable channels, which is obviously now changing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's not as much a thing anymore. Netflix shows, and I assume also like Amazon shows and Hulu shows, cost a ton more because they don't have that offset cost. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how that deal would work with CBS and Netflix. That would actually be really interesting to know. I'm sure that is Well, what not... they said really early on is that basically it paid for itself purely through what the money that Netflix yeah. sent to CBS. Huh. Wild. Without going into the nitty gritty of whatever was going on there, because it's not very interesting. Yeah. But like, I guess they're assuming that every Star Trek fan in the world, which is definitely some people, uh, <laughs> yeah. are all tuning the fuck in. <laughs> so basically, Netflix did the same thing I do with, for their other shows. Which is pay the same amount, like pay $8 million an episode for it without the offset cost of being able to license it, right? Because you will have it forever, yeah. but no one else will ever have it. They, Yeah, I mean, they must think there are a lot of people who are going to watch this and there are a ton of Star Trek fans, but you would think that... But it's like, it's basically the only TV franchise where you can guarantee every single demographic because every single demographic likes Star Trek. Like, yeah. And age ranges. Like, there are people who are, like, 100 years old who'd be like, give me the new Star Trek that I hate. There's no <laughs> William in it, you know? <laughs> yes. That is true. Um, it will be really interesting to see the extent to which it succeeds as, like, um, a serialized story. Because it so clearly is not like going to be episodic mm. based on the... Well, it really hinges um, on the fact that it's got a protagonist, right? Because all the other yeah. Star Trek shows... I mean, some of them really had quite poor character development. But like basically, the way it worked is that you love the characters because you really enjoy their rapport. And then the storylines basically are just single episode stories. And then, you know, in Deep Space Nine... And I think maybe Enterprise and some of TNG, they had ongoing plot lines, but the rest is very much kind of self-contained episode of the week. And that's why it does so well in syndication, because you can tune in at any point and be like, oh, it's my faves. They're doing whatever, you know, they're fighting a troll. But with this, it's a completely different model. And that is something also, of course, a lot of fans object to. But I mean, I think it's fine, right? You know, move on with the times and do something new. You can't do what you were doing in 1966. Um, and it really hinges on whether the protagonist can work. And honestly, from the first two episodes, I think Sunipa Martin-Green is incredibly charming. And her character is really interesting. I don't know, what did you think? Uh, I, w- I found her fine. I thought she was... <laughs> I thought she was charming. I found it a very kind of, like, superficial kind of acting, if that makes any sense. Which I think has more to do with the material. It's hard to tell. It's at a short space that it like. Whenever she experienced like, an emotion, I experienced the same emotion. <laughs> it was very much sort of like she's got spunk and heart, and she's gonna like do her best to like do what she thinks is right. And I was like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> like, I know. Like, it felt very much like television acting to me, which is like, okay, but the stuff in the sort of, like, coming up on this season looked kind of more interesting to me, but I was not moved enough by this to uh, care. 
her they changed her hair for the next however many episodes and i thought her hair was better <laughs> i was like oh that seems like yeah i'm, look I'm, more interesting I'm, I'm now. interested to see if anyone writes about her hair trajectory as concerns her vulcan upbringing because obviously she's raised on vulcan and as a child and as a young woman she has like this vulcan haircut like a pudding bowl haircut like spock and i noticed that when she first arrives on the starfleet ship her haircut covers her eyebrows, so, you know, she's hiding the fact that she doesn't have Vulcan eyebrows because she wants to fit in with the Vulcan culture. And then, seven years later, she's got a slightly less severe haircut, and then, when she finally, like, goes into the future, she's got her natural curly hair, and I'm like, was she straightening her hair the whole time she was in Vulcan in order to fit in? Apparently, yes. That's what it seems like. Although there are black Vulcans and they have natural hair, so I'm not sure, you know, whatever. But, um... (laughs) You can extrapolate at will. You can believe whatever you want to believe in your heart about this hair issue. <laughs> oh, the Vulcans are very into fashion, even though it's not logical. They love their ritual robes and their cool architecture. Yes, I have picked up on that. Oh no, yeah, of course, because you watched you watched the 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 undiscovered country last night, where Spock has some really great robes. Oh yeah, and his his quarters are decorated with some really beautiful 80s objects he's got Um, he's got like several ceremonial bongs and then like an original chagall uh kim cattrall is also at that movie as a vulcan which i was not expecting i I, I intentionally didn't tell you that she was in it that's really quite something there's a haircut going on love the haircut i'm really into um starfleet sideburns that's one of my favorite small details from star trek is that everyone has triangular sideburns (laughs) just the expressions the fashion of the future will be very geometrical (laughs) everyone in starfleet has starfleet regulation triangular sideburns I, someone in 1960s decided that, and it is the only ongoing element they decided to keep throughout the whole franchise. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> um, did you notice the similarities of vocal inflection between Spock and Michael Barnum? No. Because, like, as soon as I saw the first trailer, I was like, I fucking love that she's got a Vulcan accent. And this is a deep cut, because it doesn't matter at all. But people like me are very happy, because, like, she does have... It's not just like a matter of being kind of unemotional. It's like there's a specific type of Vulcan performance <laughs> that the characters have. And the reason why I find it really, really Morgan's just laughing at me. <laughs> She's just silently know, laughing true. at me on Skype. <laughs> but like when when I watched Silicon Valley, like the the woman who plays the older of the two female characters who is in charge of a finance company she, rather than being, like, playing an emotional, unemotional nerd, literally uses, like, the Vulcan inflection. <laughs> so I was like, oh my god. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Michael Burnham has the Vulcan inflection and she uses a lot of mannerisms that are kind of reminiscent of Leonard Nimoy's performance. So I guess it, like, kickstarts your memory if you watch, like, older Star Trek or Voyager, which has another Vulcan character in it. But, like, she's got so much depth of emotion underneath it, and you can kind of see the transitions between when she's, like, feeling loads of, like, powerful rage, or she's really excited because she's going to get go into space and stuff. And I was just like, it's so effective. I love her so much. <laughs> so it's like, I'm already heavily, heavily invested in her as a character, even though they've basically failed to introduce the characters that they're advertising in the show. Like, they've spent months promoting the cast of the USS Discovery, which is Captain Jason Isaacs. Uh, and then there's like a fungus specialist who's the first gay main character in Star Trek TV. 
And then Michael Burnham's going to get an adorable roommate who's like a recent college grad who's played by some Juilliard kid who's meant to be hilarious. There's like five other characters who are in it. And I'm definitely going to love as soon as they show up because they are in Star Trek. So unless one of them turns out to be like a monster, it's going to be like, I fucking love you. But I mean, you know, just Saru right now. And I already love Saru. Right now I'm about one third of the way through the tie-in novel for this show which they released today and I'm reviewing tomorrow and it's great because there's loads of just interactions between Saru and Michael Barnum they really don't like each other at all and what I really love about Saru is that he's really annoying and boring at parties he's like an annoying boring butler that just keeps talking about science and is really socially anxious and I was just like I just love him I love him so much (laughs) the only surprising element of Star Trek Discovery is that there are no ships no one to ship yet yeah none well, from the first two episodes, you uh, you really don't get much. So I mean, perhaps some people. I completely am open to other people shipping Michael Burnham and Georgie, but I got way too much of a mother daughter vibe for that. No, no, no. But some people, I mean, literally, is, some people say that about Janeway and Seven of Nine in Voyager because they tried to introduce Janeway and Seven of Nine in Voyager as a mother daughter thing, and I was just watching it, being like, "You're gay. You're all gay. You're super gay." <laughs> like, I mean, it's like first of all, it's Janeway who's. I don't know. It's just me. But uh, but like Janeway and Seven of Nine, it's not really. They didn't succeed in their attempt to make that a maternal relationship. I mean, in this... It's definitely, like, yeah, it's really maternal in this, I think. Michael Burnham's parents have been killed by the Klingons, and then she's freaking out because she wants to make sure that Michelle Yeoh doesn't get killed by the Klingons. And it's like very... I mean, And they set up like Sarek and Michelle Yeoh as the two alternate sides of her upbringing and stuff. But um, yeah. Yeah, there's no one to ship yet, so we'll see what happens. Soon enough, yeah, I am sure. I mean, obviously there's a canonical couple, but canonical couples are not always as satisfying to ship because they're just going to be like the fungus expert and his doctor boyfriend just like being really domestic. Yeah, no one ever cares. (laughs) I'm very happy for their groundbreaking decision, but in terms of fan fiction, it's going to be like two characters that want to murder each other or like two random characters that have never met. So we'll see. Based on the uh, one minute trailer I saw at the end of the episode, they didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of romance uh, happening in general. So uh, who knows? I mean, occasionally Star Trek does successfully make characters that seem like they would date each other. In most cases, (laughs) they don't. Star Trek The Next Generation spent six or seven years trying to convince people that Riker and Counselor Troy were definitely an on and off couple. Um, and that just went, that that was definitely something that we experienced on screen. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Troy had to wear a lot of cat suits. Oh, that sounds great. Her job was that she could sense emotions. And the awesome. actress is just, she is a hero, a true hero, who had a very, <laughs> very powerful sense of humor about all of this. And finally, when she was allowed to not wear a cat suit, she was like, genuinely, as soon as I stopped wearing the cat suit, they started giving me dialogue with like numbers and science in it. Like my personality had changed because my tits were no longer <laughs> on show. And it's like, Marina Sartis, you are a hero. Every single, this is, the, this is one of the reasons why it's really great that this show has a female lead, not just in the fact that it's representation, but like every single Star Trek show has been incredibly important in terms of representation and like kind of feminism and all this stuff. And every single one has been like a toxic hellhole behind the scenes for the female leads. There's always been at least one who either has quit or been fired or been embroiled in like some hideous sexual harassment thing. And uh, in this one, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, we can hope. We can hope. But I'm reasonably certain that those days are over for Star Trek specifically, even if they are currently 
in progress throughout Hollywood. Because this one does have at least a female co-showrunner, several women writers, and Sonequa Martin-Green seems very much on top of being head of the call list here. She is, she's really captaining that ship. Um, and also, I just feel like uh, Jason Isaacs would probably punch anyone who tries anything. Like, he definitely has that vibe, so, yeah. <laughs> well, do you have any any last Star Trek thoughts I mean, to share? Yeah, I don't, like, I'm surprised that this episode is, like, so short. It could have been, like, two hours, but we've really managed to keep it punctual. I think we have covered <laughs> basically everything here. Um, I could kind of go into more detail about why I really love the kind of traditionalism aspects of the Klingon culture, but I feel like people can just head over to my reviews. I'm going to be doing weekly recaps of this every morning, so um, every Monday morning. So I feel like people can kind of go and check those out if they want more details. Yeah, basically, I just have to thank Morgan for her support during this <laughs> during this trying time. Yes, <laughs> of course. I'm sure you've um, heard and then immediately discarded a lot of Star Trek details from me over the past year. <laughs> oh, it's all been in one ear and out the other. <laughs> I think I hardly have learned a lot about Star Trek. Well, and you also... now know that Vulcans pronounce censor as censor. Yeah, that's true. I think probably there's been around a 50-50 split of like things I've absorbed and then things that you'll email me that I'll just read and be like, I literally don't understand what this is like i mean turnabout requires... i can now recognize like maybe four whole tennis players yeah so you know it's a reciprocal <laughs> relationship that's fine um next week we will be discussing the new john le Carre novel a legacy of spies yes we're very excited about this uh so please give that a read and join in we it's gonna be also great recommend such a good book. yeah oh loved it we would also recommend checking out uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy before you do so. They have both been adapted into films. Uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, at least, is available on Netflix. Possibly The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, too, depending on what country you live in. So check that out. Uh, but we're, we're pumped about that. Really good book. I love John le Carre. Uh, I could talk about that for around a week. So we'll have a little bit of a, a tilted, tilted uh, ratio next time. Um, but as ever, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.